My name is Dana. I know some of you. And uh, some of you I don't. It's nice to be here with you for this time. I appreciate some of you traveled such a long way. I mean, Richmond's not as far as Toronto, but it took longer. Right? Toronto, they told me, took 10 hours last night. And Richmond took 12. So, wow. That's quite a struggle just to get here. Now, I have something. Uh, for those, uh, how many of you were here last year? Okay. Well, believe it or not, you're actually on this CD. So, uh, I caught some people crackling paper, some people sniffling, some people laughing. Uh, you may recognize your voice, some people singing. So, I put together about 20, uh, actually 25 exactly, 25 songs that we sang uh, last year in Toronto and here. I'm sorry that some of the recording didn't turn out as good. It was actually, uh, it was digital and was over the top, so it distorted, but I tried to do the best I could and make a CD. So if you were here last year, uh, then you should get one of these on the back table after we're through. Uh, and if you all, also, if you bought the pack of five, then this is the sixth one that you, you should cram in the pack and then close it <laughs> and pretend it's one complete set, okay? Because that's it. This is part three of section two. Dana Ladder Reigns. That means Dana when he's old and gray-haired. So 25 songs. You'll recognize some of the songs because we sang them last year. You'll hear yourself singing in the background. And then you may moan and groan a little bit as you hear yourself singing off-key, but whatever the case. This is it on the back table. I, I think I brought enough for uh, everybody here uh, on the back table, but why don't you take one tonight and people who come in tomorrow, they're out of luck, right? <laughs> no, I'll try to bring some tomorrow night. Uh, so I want to just get started. I, I know that you're uh, pretty tired, long day and everything, so I'm not going to fool around, just get right down to the topic and hopefully I'll be able to share the burden that I have uh, during this weekend. Why don't we start out with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful again to be in your presence and we know in your presence there is fullness of joy. We know in your presence there's refreshing we pray that you would refresh our bodies, our minds, and our spirits as we gather now to study your word. Do show us, Lord, the truth that we may walk in it and be strengthened thereby. We want to commit this time to you now and thank you, Lord, for being with us so far. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, you can see tonight, uh, this is called our, our foundation, and that's ground zero right there. Uh, and there you see a foundation being laid. The firm foundation of God stands, it says in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. The foundation for the, these new uh, freedom buildings, freedom towers, uh, I think, I understand it's, it's six stories deep, right? Or is it five? Five or six stories deep. In other words, they built all that down in there and there's shops down on level three. Ladies, that's for you. Shops, uh, eating places on level four. Guys, that's for you. And, and uh, down level five, you, j you just go to die. That's where I'm going. Uh, it's, it's something for everybody there. So uh, that's what they're building right now and it's a good picture of foundation. All right. Now Jesus... And Paul both used two metaphors to picture the key to Christian growth. We all want to grow, but there's two keys. They talked about being rooted. That's one metaphor. We're to be rooted and built up in Him. 
Because the roots of a plant determine how tall it can grow. There's some really huge trees. I was down in Memphis last weekend. They've got some old trees there that are huge. Some kind of a oak tree. Some kind of a strange... Well, anyway, it's an oak tree. And they're huge. And you know what? Just uh, two weeks ago, they had a tremendous uh, hurricane tornado go through there and tear down these trees. Well, when some of these trees fell down, and I mean, I'm talking, I mean, they're really tall trees. The, you saw the rooting of those trees. And the, the rooting of the tree was 15 feet long, the, the big tap root. It's amazing how a good root will cause a strong tree to be grown. And so we see both Jesus and Paul using scriptures, which we all know. Here, uh, Jesus in Matthew 13 is talking about the sower who went out to sow. And he sowed on rocky ground. And the plant grew up pretty quick. But because it didn't have any root, it says, when the sun came out, it scorched the plant and it died. See, some people are pretty shallow in their rooting. And then when trouble comes along, they don't last. And then Paul here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7 uh, is our verse for the weekend. There we are being rooted. Paul's concerned that the Christians be rooted. The second metaphor that Paul and Jesus both use is foundation. Uh, the foundation of a building supports the structure of the building. I mean, you know, you need a good foundation underneath. If it's well laid, the foundation makes a building safe and strong. So you just, it just depends how you build it. And uh, let's see, somebody from Richmond, what building is that? What is it? Empire State Building? It's the name of a car. It's the Chrysler Building. That's right. Okay. We need a strong foundation. And Jesus said that, you know, the guy built his house on a sandy thing with no foundation. And when the tempest came, that, that uh, house was probably built just as nice as the house on a good foundation. But the guy who was smart, he built it on the rock. And so when the flood came, it, the house remained. And uh, Paul is very clear to say here in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we as young Christians get saved, we give our heart to Jesus, things like that. That's good as we're children, but growing up, we needed to have and understand the foundation of Jesus Christ as the very basis for our life if we want to grow and be strong as a Christian. And so I want to talk tonight about our foundation. Now, I know the scriptures on being rooted, but being rooted and being founded is pretty much the same thing, and my burden is actually for foundation. And could we look at two scriptures, please, before we get into this any further? One is in uh, Psalm 11. It's actually a pretty familiar psalm to some of you, I think. But Psalm 11 has a very interesting uh, word to say. Verse 3 of Psalm 11 is actually my burden when combined with a second scripture in Isaiah 58. Psalm 11, verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, if the foundations of a nation are destroyed, the righteous have no hope of peace in that nation. You can see what's happening in Libya and Egypt and even in the United States. As we lose our foundation, 
uh, it's very difficult for the righteous to know how to move forward. And that's why foundations are something we need to emphasize as something so important. And in Isaiah chapter 58, could I just take it to one second verse here as a sort of the burden of what's going on uh, as I see it? Um, in verse 12, there's a promise, a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And I have been praying and am praying this for you as a generation. This is a generational prophecy. And it says, Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. And now here I'm talking very specifically about the foundations of Christianity and the foundations of the church, which are right now under great attack, and in many places, in fact, the foundations are crumbling. There's a number of uh, churches that are built on a bad foundation. And uh, today we're seeing the problem with what I call the malaise of the evangelical vanilla church. It's just vanilla. They're Christians. they got no convictions. They got no responsibilities. They got no accountability. The foundation's very weak. And the enemy comes along, and in a storm of persecution or difficulties, the Christians just leave those churches. They fall away. They have nothing to stand on. But there's a generation, according to Isaiah 58, who will repair the foundations because they know the foundations. It's just like the remnant that went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They had to start at the foundation. And it takes some brothers and sisters who love the Lord so much, who know His Word, and know the foundation of their life to rebuild the foundations of the church. I pray that you will be a generation that God will use to rebuild the church in its foundation. So that's behind what's behind this uh, relatively simple uh, message over the two times I'm sharing in the evening. So, okay, let's look at it. You know, what, uh, you know what a foundation is. It's the basis of your life. And so many of you are so privileged. You've got a family that loves the Lord. You read the Bible together. That's really foundational. There's a foundational involved in your education, uh, direction as to your career, foundation in building your own home. I mean by that uh, wife and children, even as uh, Jeffrey and Catherine were talking about today. These foundational things are very important and to have a right foundation in these things can produce a very wonderful and productive life. That's just speaking naturally. The Christian's foundation is a person. Jesus Christ is our foundation. No man can lay any other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter says there in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's quoting from the Old Testament and he says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So we know that the, the stone he's talking about is a person. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jesus is our very foundation. And I believe Maurice spoke this morning on I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because you see, that's the very foundation of our life. It's a person. Building our life upon the rock of Jesus. Really vital. But no man can lay that foundation. Jesus Christ must be the foundation of our life. 
What is the foundation of your life? A lot of things that we put our hope in, trust in, we kind of build our life upon, good education, all these things. All these things are necessary. But the foundation of our life is to be Jesus Christ. The foundation we talk of is a person, Jesus Christ. But the foundation of the Christian life also involves truth. Foundational truths to live by. And this is my burden for the next two sessions. Uh, we notice here in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell the Christians it's time to move on to maturity. And he says, not laying again a foundation. And he mentions some of the foundational understandings of the Christian life. Repentance from dead works. That's very important to understand. Faith toward God. Instruction about baptisms and the laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are foundational things. So you see, these are truths. But these are foundational truths to us growing strong as a Christian. So as I'm saying, maybe you were 12 years old and you asked Jesus to come into your heart. Now that is uh, probably a reference to Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. And it's wonderful to ask Jesus to come into your heart. But there comes a time when you need to know the truth and the foundation of why you are saved. Because if you don't, when you get to college or get to talking to some of your worldly friends, they will challenge every ground of your Christian life. And we need to know these foundations. They're important to us. Of what does our foundation consist? It has four layers. Our foundation. See that strata there, foundational material? We've got four layers. What do you think they are? Never mind, I'll tell you. Number one, righteousness. Number two, holiness. Number three, love. Number four, truth. Now, you see, you've heard these words and you've talked about them and you've had Sunday school classes and all. Many of you have had a lot of training in these things. But this is the very foundation of your Christian life. And to understand these things as your foundation will help you grow strong as a Christian. Now the question might be asked, why these four? Why not uh, good works? Why not uh, patience? You know, all this kind of stuff. Well, there's a reason for it. And here it is. Because God is these four things. Now God has many things, as we'll see in a moment. But God is love. What it says in 1 John 4, 8. So I might pose to you the question, have you ever met the God of love? Now, I know you would think probably of the four, that would be the easiest one to say, oh yeah, I know that God loves me. No, I didn't say that. Did you meet the God of love? God is also righteous. That's usually the first God that we do meet. I mean, this is the same God, of course. And, uh, the, and God is holy. Holy, 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 it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And the First John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light. And this is speaking about truth. God is these four things in essence. Have you met God 
in these four dimensions. That's the very foundation of your life. To meet God in these four ways is very, very important. I say to the God of love, you say, oh yeah, I know the God of love. Well, you've heard of God's love for you. When you meet the God of love, it's a very surprising thing. I can tell people who've met the God of love. You know why? Because for the rest of their life, they pour out their lives for others. That's what happens when you meet the God of love. It's not that you feel comfy, cozy, and he puts on, he puts on one of those, uh, what do you call those, a little warmy, snuggy. He puts a little snuggy on and says, here, I love you. Now you just go to bed. Take it easy. God, you meet the God of love. And he says, forever, you're calling. Is to love one another as I have loved you. Lay down your life for your friends. And all these kinds of things. Oh boy. You meet the God of love. Uh, you got a challenge. Now you see these four essences. What do I mean by essences? God is. right. God is love. God is light. God is holy. God is righteous. He is. That's his isness. What's your isness? You see as a Christian your life should be becoming... Your isness is you are light of the world. You are righteous. You are love. You are in the truth. This should be your isness. This starts out in God's isness. And you see, out of his isness, we see his attributes. See that whole list of things? I just meant, I just wrote down 15 just off the top of my head. There's a lot more. You know, we say he's eternal, he's gracious, he's unchanging, he's sovereign, he's infinite. We're describing his personality. All of those things come out of combinations of these things. Patience is righteousness meeting love and saying, okay, let's wait a while before we beat them up. You see, uh, you know, this, God is a living combination and a mix of all of this. So when people come to me and say, oh, I, I, I believe, how can uh, we have a tragedy in such and such a place if God is a God of love? You know how I answer? I say, God is not a God of love. They say, what? I say God is a God of love, holiness, righteousness, and truth. Got to take all four of them together. That's God. See, people just pick one side. Eh, I like the nice side about God. <laughs> eh, don't tell me about righteousness. That's too scary. Eh, I like God of love. The God who gives me Tootsie Roll Pops. Well, if you're going to meet the true and living God, you're going to meet all four of these things, you see. All of those things he does comes out of who he is. And his actions also come out of who he is. Why does he love you? Because his isness is love. All he has to do is be. He goes, be, and it's love. Now, you and I can do a lot of be, and it's self-love. It's a whole different projection of what's going on here, you see. So his actions, he redeems, he shows mercy, he reveals, he teaches, he heals, he judges, he grieves, he gets mad, he sanctifies, he does all these things. It all comes out of his isness, you see. Every action he takes comes out of who he is. He doesn't do something independent of what he feels. He is, and he does out of what he is. So, since God created everything, when you look at creation, you can see God in his isness. You see some love in there. You see some righteousness. You see some holiness. You see some truth. There it is. All there in creation. So here's just two scriptures that say that. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows His handiwork is basically what that firmament means. And Romans chapter 1 verse 20. 
For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Since the creation, His nature has been clearly seen. Anybody's got eyeballs and are honest will see that God is who He says He is. God's Word reveals who He is. So you go to the Bible and there it is again. Those four things. And I wrote those four scriptures there because it just says God is love, God is righteous, God is holy, God is light. That's what the Word of God tells us. He is these things. Christ revealed God's being in these four dimensions in His flesh. So John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you replace love for grace, because it's, it's a love word, you see love and truth when Jesus came down in the flesh. Acts chapter 3, verse 14 says, But you disowned, rejected, Jesus, the Holy and Righteous One. Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is the Righteous One. So when Jesus came down to earth, He gave us... See, what I'm looking for is a balanced picture of God. Now, there's many pictures of God that are totally unbalanced. There are idols. You go to India and there's idols. Or you go somewhere and they've they got a God who looks like some kind of ah! kind of thing. They're scared of life out of you, you see. But that's not who God is. How do you get a balanced understanding of who God is? You go to the lovey-dovey group. You go to the scarum, scarum, scarum group? No? You look at Jesus Christ and you can see holiness, love, righteousness, truth. Because Jesus is the very essence of God. Right? Wonderful. But now Christ, in Christ, God has made us partakers of this divine nature. Now there we are as a Christian. And somehow, as we are in Christ Jesus, we begin to taste of these dimensions of isness that begin to transform our being into a loving person, into a righteous person, into a holy person, into a person in the light and truth. It's being caught in this uh, vortex right here. I call it the quadrilateral vortex where all four of these realities are being worked on, as you see, that's the balanced Christian life that grows strong. I would say, I'm going to be really mean and say, 75% of the present-day churches here in the United States are missing one of these legs. And what do you get? Unbalanced Christians. Christians who feel this way. Or Christians who limp this way. But they don't have a full understanding of this great God that we confront or who confronts us because He's the living God. And God has made it so that Christ can become these four aspects to us. Listen to this very important scripture in 1 Corinthians 1.30. By His doing, that means by God's doing, by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus. That's your zone. Right here. This says in Greek, in Christ. En Christo. And so you are in this zone right here, in Christ. And you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom. Let's see, which one of those is that to go along with? Yeah, truth. You see, Wisdom. 
and righteousness and sanctification. Sanctification is just a big word for being made holy. And redemption, which again is a love word. So in Christ Jesus, these things have been made real to us. And because we are in Christ Jesus, His life begins to be expressed out of us in these four dimensions. So there's three things we have to look at when we talk about foundations. Who God is, who Christ is and enables us, and then who we are. And the same foundation should show up in the essence of all three levels of this life that we live. Right? Looked at from a heavenly point of view, we might look at it this way. Because the Old Testament talked about it this way. They said that we are, as his children, under God's throne. And God's throne has four legs on it. Could I put it that way? Let's just pretend that God's throne here is, has the four legs. And we are people and we're under the throne of God. Right? Uh, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. So first of all, we know His throne is holy. And if we truly live under His throne, we must know a holy God. And so I put it this way. Here's God's throne. I speak as a fool. God's throne is much bigger than this. It's made all of gold. But no. No, no, God doesn't sit on a, a you know, mechanical throne up there the other side of uh, Neptune. No, no, we're talking about something spiritual here. But notice what it says in the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament picture. You see, the New Testament picture is this. Our life is in Christ, who is wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Old Testament vision is our life is under God, who is holiness and righteousness and love and truth. So look at Psalm 89.14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice, it's the same parallel. Love and truth go before you. And here's a Hebrew parallelism showing us that the foundation of God's throne involves righteousness, love, and truth. And we already saw Psalm 47.8. God reigns. He sits on His holy throne. There's the four corners of his throne. And we should live our lives in such a way that it's something like this. This is the Christian life. Upon Christ, our solid rock, who has become all of this to us, and under God's throne. Isn't that wonderful? It's objective, it's subjective. Our life is hid in Christ who has become all of these wonderful things to us. But our life is also under God's throne who is forever righteous, light, holiness, and love. This is to be our life. This is how God builds a strong Christian. This is the foundation of Him. It's the foundation of Christ. It's our foundation. Alright? Alright. So that. Enough of that sort of intro, because tonight we're just going to talk about righteousness. All right, righteousness. Founded upon righteousness. I know some of you are pursuing Christ in your life, and you know all of these things. 
I'm just trying to share simply for those who maybe haven't really defined some of these things before. Because I do think they're very important to our Christian life. Okay? We saw that verse about righteousness being the foundation. We also see in Acts 22, it talks about Jesus being the one God appointed to know, that you might know His will and to see the righteous one. Now, if you see Jesus, you will see the righteous one. Now, does that scare you? Well, if you know what that means, it does scare you. And the fact that it doesn't scare you means you've been fed pap. Too much love. And it's time to get off the pablum and to eat shredded wheats. Even mini shredded wheats with the coating. But still, you see, it's time to grow up and eat the truth regarding God. So tonight, here we go. Just looking at the foundation of righteousness. It's not complicated, okay? What does it mean? God is righteous. The Bible says God is righteous. Okay, what does that mean? Here's what it means. God is all right. God is always right. God always does right. God always makes right. You got it? All right, we'll do one at a time. Here we go. God is all right. Now, I know this is hard for us to picture because there's none of us who are all right. Everybody here is a nervous bundle of neurosis and borderline psychosis. There's nothing wrong with God. There's no weakness in Him, no weak side. Well, God is very strong, but He... You know how you say sometimes about your father. Well, my father is very demanding. He doesn't have too much love. You'll never find some kind of thing like that in God. Totally no weakness. No sin can be found in Him. God, God is righteous. What does that mean? His isness cannot sin. Sin is unrighteousness. How can the righteous one do unrighteousness? He invented righteousness. Righteousness was the invention of his isness. Now, he can't cross that up, you see. There's no imperfection of his character. There's no past mistakes. Here's a little poem. I just like the part that says, You are the perfect and righteous God whose presence bears no sin. Absolutely right. He is all right. Nothing's wrong. Unfortunately, I am left-handed. That's two strikes against you right there. God is all right-handed. All right. Sorry, you other lefties. I'm only kidding. You know, but there you go. Second, God is always right. Ladies and gentlemen, forget about it. You got an argument with Him? He's right. Go ahead and fight Him. He loves to hear you just carry on and fight. But God, if you let me do this, I'll do that. And God just sits there. You can argue all you want, but God is always right. Now, your parents say they're always right. I got a clue for you. Sometimes they're not. But to save time, let's assume God's always right. He never makes a mistake. He never judges partially. You know, you know sometimes you judge a parent, let's say, judges their child based on incomplete knowledge. You see, here's the deal. When a sinner comes before a righteous God, he's going to say, but God, I didn't know you were like this. I mean, I lived a pretty good life. What's God, the righteous God going to say? 
Okay, Gabriel, roll the videotape. Let's see that life. Because God is righteous and He exposes unrighteousness. We may think we're all right, but God doesn't make any mistakes when He judges us. Anytime He judges you, He's right. David said that one time when God was disciplining him because of his sin. He said, God, you're always right when you judge. See, he saw a righteous God. Uh, he never loses the argument because he's right. Settle on it. That means that you're wrong most of the time. And even now, in my advanced years, I'm still always wrong. You might as well approach it. If you have an argument with God, you're wrong. You might just as well come to God humbly and say, okay, God, I thought it was working this way. And he says, well, I'm glad you came and acknowledged that you're wrong. See, Okay. God always does right. Now, righteousness is a doing word. You do righteousness. And this is the most active part of God's isness. Because he is righteous, he's always doing right. He's fair and impartial. He protects and blesses. God's timing is never early, never late. Just according to our timing, right? But God's timing is always perfect. And when God does something, He does a perfect job. He really does it right. He does not leave anything undone. A couple of screws left out of the engine. No, no, no. God does it right. And God is a doer. So when you meet the God of righteousness, you meet a doer. He is a mover, a powerful mover. If you had to take those four essences of God and say which one is the, reveals the most power, really His righteousness moves in power. So this thing just shows some little things there. God, he watches, He loves the righteous, He hates evil, etc. God is not sitting around doing nothing because His isness is to do. Because what He does, He does right. He doesn't get tired doing he has infinite energy to do powerfully according to His will. The fourth is God always makes something right. Now this is where His redemption comes in. Now, God not only does right, but He sees something that's gone wrong. God will work His plans in spite of our mistakes. And this is where His righteousness touches us in salvation. Because he restores what was lost. He keeps every promise. He overturns evil and sin's consequences. He saves the unrighteous. You see, it's sort of like this. The problem is, we were created to walk, but we're upside down. When God makes us righteous, He basically turns us from upside down and He puts us right side up. And then we can do what we're supposed to do. Now, God makes things right. There's a lot of creepy crawlers here tonight. And you're on your back just twiddling your legs, but you're not doing anything. What kind of a Christian is this? Oh, I love God. I want to serve God. So only God can make it right. Only God can turn you up and actually put you so you're on your feet instead of your back and get you walking. God makes things right. Oh. Thank God. We have screwed things up so bad. 
But God in His righteousness makes things right. Wonderful God. Now, when you look at the laws of nature, you see His righteousness. Some of it's scary. The law, this is according to you know, the poet Longfellow, the writer. The laws of nature are just but terrible. There's no weak mercy in them. Cause and consequence are inseparable and inevitable. The elements have no forbearance. The fire burns, the water drowns, the air consumes, the earth buries. It's the first thing that a human being should discover about God. God is righteous and you can see it in nature. It should be one of the first places we learn about these things. The Old Covenant reveals His righteousness. There's the stones of the Ten Commandments, uh, as it were. And here we saw when He gathered those children of Israel together there at Mount Sinai, He made a covenant with them. He revealed to them what He expected. Now, God would never punish somebody if they don't know what, do what they've done wrong. So God spells out the parameters. He tells you what He expects. He blesses and protects those who keep His covenant. And when they're unrighteous, they have to be judged. But He defines what unrighteousness is. All of that time, He spent two years around Mount Sinai helping the children of Israel to understand what is righteousness and what is unrighteousness. By the law, he revealed his righteousness. Now we have a problem on the mission field today for those who go out as full-time missionaries out to far-flung places. And what's the problem? When you go and you share the gospel about God's love, many times the gospel comes across as a bit shallow and people don't understand. So missionaries discovered a long time ago before you share the gospel of how Jesus died for your sins, first, you should teach the natives the Old Testament. First, they need to see the law and God's requirements and God's righteousness in order to understand that they can't be righteous. And then, they can seek salvation. Now, that's why Paul says that the law is a tutor that brings us to Christ. And that's why when you're a little child and you're Sunday school or whatever, you learn the Ten Commandments and you learn how things should be done. This is a revelation of God's righteousness. God likes it when things are right, when things are orderly, when things are done in the right kind of way, in a pure way, in a holy way. He is righteous and we need to learn that. Now, brothers and sisters, why am I emphasizing this tonight and maybe I'm boring you in the process? I'm going to tell you why. Because this is the missing leg in the foundation of many churches. They have a loving God who isn't righteous. And they do whatever they want. But if you meet this righteous God who wrote these holy laws and revealed Himself in nature in every way as righteous, if you meet that righteous God you will fear and respect God. As Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it comes when you recognize who God is. Now, I'm not trying to scare you guys. Because I can tell you've already been baptized in enough love to uh, anesthetize you from anything I might say. 
But the foundation leg of righteousness has got to be soundly built upon the lives of Christians if they are to grow properly as a Christian. And that's why if somebody asked you, what is the book of the Bible that reveals the righteousness of God the most? Of course, it's the book of Romans. As Paul opens the book, he opens here in chapter 1 and he gets to verse 17 to his topic. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Here's what it says. The righteous man shall live by faith. Here's what Romans says to you. You are righteous as you live by faith. Abraham was counted righteous when he believed God. Righteousness by faith the basis of the gospel and the letter to the Romans. Let's just do a really brief look at this. Uh, yeah, I mean, this book is a wonderful book, but let's just look at a couple of things. First three chapters declares the righteousness of God and therefore the sinfulness and unrighteousness of man. If you reveal one, you know what? <laughs> Let me put it this way. Let's just say I'm a sinner right now and I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm better than the next guy. So when I go to heaven, God's going to put me in the balance and He's going to say, oh yeah, good works, a lot of good works, a couple of bad things, yeah, no problem, go into heaven. Now that's somebody who hasn't met a righteous God. Because the moment you meet a righteous God, you see that your righteousness is filthy rags. Nobody has to tell you. If you stand by somebody righteous, you know that you're unrighteous. And that's what the Holy Spirit tries to do. Tries to get us to see the righteous God before whom we must uh, deal. So, chapter 1, you remember how Paul goes into uh, how men saw God in creation but refused to say He's a righteous God? They rejected God's righteousness because they were unrighteousness. Paul says they suppressed the truth. They could see God, but they said, I don't see God. Looking around, I don't see God. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's what Paul says. It's on purpose. People who say they don't believe in God are doing it on purpose. They have an agenda. They want to live a life free of all constraints. Chapter 2 says this, God's righteousness is impartial. You know how you can tell? <laughs> Paul says, here's how you can tell. Because whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you both have a conscience. What is a conscience? The conscience is your righteous mirror inside that tells you you're not doing something right. Every man has a conscience, Paul says. And if the Gentiles have a conscience, even though they don't have the Ten Commandments, it just shows that they, there's something of righteousness that they see from God. Chapter 3, of course, brings it all down that we're all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's not a Jew who is righteous by his own works. Neither is there a Gentile. And God's righteous judgment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's it. Unrighteousness is deserving of death. Paul sets the scene to bring us to perhaps one of the most wonderful chapters in the New Testament. As he gets to the end of chapter 3, he describes suddenly a new kind of righteousness. The gospel 
which the Jews had not heard before. And so we just take it in part and look at it like this. But now, this is uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Can you see these all right? Can you see the yellow writing? Is that the wrong color to use? You can see it all right? Okay. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, what he's saying by that is, there's a new righteousness that's been made by a new covenant. And it's, not, it's no longer a righteousness based on the law. It's a righteousness based on a new covenant made. Okay? Uh, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So it's a righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Now this is talking about a living faith. Putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your righteousness. He goes on to say, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning Jews, Gentiles. But we've been justified as a gift by His grace. There's no difference, by the way, between righteousness and justified. Actually, you could say, if you put it this way, you have been righteousified. But we just don't have that word. So you have to change it to justified. But it's the same word. There's no difference. It's just we don't have a word for righteousified. So we say justified, right? Being justified is a gift by His grace. Justified is a gift. Through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, we've been bought back, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Propitiation. I'd like to see the American who came up with that word. Actually, the Greek word is mercy seat. Whom God displayed publicly as a mercy seat in His blood through faith. Now look what faith does. It believes in Christ. It's justified in Christ. It's redeemed by His blood. And you discover something about God. You met a righteous God, but now through Christ you discover something new. What is that? His mercy seat is always over you. The precious blood of Jesus has been come, become your propitiation, your mercy seat, your covering, your atonement. It's all by faith. Now, it's a wonderful gospel that he proclaims. He goes on to explain that God is both just and the justifier. Look at those words here in verses 25 and 26. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. See, that's the big Jewish question. How can you pass over sins committed and be just? It seems like God has overlooked or, had, or, or, or been patient about the sinfulness of men instead of judging it immediately in righteousness. See, righteousness brings judgment. But instead of being judgment, he held back his hand, but there was a reason for it. It's a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what does this mean? God must be just. That means righteous. The same word. God must be just, but he also wants to save and make righteous or justify the sinner. Now, how can he do that? If he justifies the sinner, he comes to you and says, okay, I forgive you. 
Well, that's unjust. He's no longer righteous. Because there's a penalty that's got to be paid for the sins. And you might not think that's important. God should just be able to say, oh, I forgive you. But no, somebody pays the price. The righteousness of God demands the right things be done. And so how can he be both just and a loving justifier? If he justifies, he's not just. If he's just, he can't justify. How can he do it? Well, of course, we, we know. Someone has to pay sin's wages. Now, that would be just. Someone would have to be perfectly righteous in order to pay for that sin and unrighteousness. Only then could God be both righteous and the righteous of fire. Right? And, of course, we know, praise God, Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. You know, God had a dilemma in his heart. Why? Actually, it's because two parts of his isness are colliding over you and I. Two parts of his isness are colliding. And what's that? His righteousness demands justice. His love demands redemption. Now, how can he satisfy that? He can't ignore that. He sends his son. And in his son, these two can meet. So, so now we're founded... A foundation is laid in our Christian life upon righteousness. By His death, with His blood, through faith in Him, at His mercy seat, we have found justification. Furthermore, because of His righteousness, we've been forgiven forever. We found the righteous, we're found righteous in Christ. Now when God looks at us, He sees us as righteous one. We're freed from the penalty of death and we're always able to draw near to God. Now, what a transaction this was. This is the great gospel that Paul is so eager to share with the Romans. We've now been founded upon a righteousness that's wonderful indeed. And it is this great uniting through the death of Jesus of a God who is righteous and a God who is love. Now they can meet together. We're through, except an example and a couple of final things. There was a guy. He wore crazy hats. He was a Catholic priest, and his name was Martin Luther. And around 1500 A.D., there were foundations that had been lost in the church. And it was this foundation of justification by faith apart from law and works. See, the church said faith plus works gets you into heaven, which means that almost everybody except the saints, and that's a couple of people that they make relics for and they say they're perfect, except for them, most people have to go to purgatory. Now, what is purgatory? You know what that is? It's not, it's not hell. It's not heaven. It's someplace in between where you, 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 you get slow-broiled. And you do penance there and you live there and you get burned there and fried there and you learn your lessons until you're finally perfected as a saint. And then after about the zillion years you go from purgatory to heaven. That's what the church believed in 1500. And Martin Luther was a priest in that church. 
He went down to Rome one time and he was climbing the steps and kissing each step and his knees were bleeding because he believed maybe this would take away a couple of years in purgatory. Oh man, people were always looking for ways of getting out of purgatory. And then a guy came through town and said, hey, if you give me 150 bucks, I'll take three years off purgatory. It's a special bargain today, $50 for one year. Who's going to take it? This was called indulgences. And these guys came through town and people, everybody had money, gave them some money to get some years off the, you know, their, their stay in uh, halfway land, you know. But it was then that Martin Luther discovered this foundational truth of justification by faith in the book of Romans. Justified by faith. Made righteous by faith. And peace flooded his soul. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Poor old Martin Luther, he couldn't find peace with God as much as he tried. He knew that God was angry with him. He was a righteous God who was angry with him. I don't know, but maybe some of you young people think God is angry with you. Well, then you haven't fully seen the righteousness of God. You've seen Him as righteous, but you haven't seen His righteousness in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther, his life was turned upside down. And he became the sort of one of the beginners of Protestant churches as we know them today. All the, all the group, all the Christians who left the Catholic Church, they left because this one man saw a foundation leg that had been missing for years, centuries. You had to be saved by your works. Martin Luther saw one could be saved by faith. Now the righteous. Walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall walk by faith. Now here's where it comes down to us. Right? God is righteous. Jesus Christ is righteous. And now He has put the robes of righteousness on us and has made us righteous. But that's just the beginning. Now He turns us upside down and we begin to walk. By taking Christ as our righteousness by faith. And so once again, we read 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That's the one place that righteousness works. In Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. Jesus Christ became our righteousness. When we're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, there's no righteousness. If you're in Christ, there He is. He's your righteousness. And now the second verse I'd like you to think about. By daily abiding in Christ, His life in us produces works of righteousness. 1 John 3, 7, there's a number of verses that talk about these kind of things. Listen to what it says. Now, now he's talking to Christians. Listen. He, John wants a foundation under our lives as Christians. So he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now we live as Christians under his throne. We live in Christ Jesus and under the throne of God's righteousness. And because we live in Christ, there's something that happens in our life. And what is that? As we abide in him, 
we begin to practice righteousness. We begin to do righteous things. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, the proof of it is you do righteous things. You do things right. Your actions are right toward other people, toward your parents. Now, of course, not perfectly, but you're practicing righteousness. You know First John doesn't say anybody's ever perfect in this thing. But now you've begun to work and do righteous. In other words, your doer begins to be active. Doing right things. You don't, your doer is not working in order to be saved, but now because you're saved, your doer is doing righteous. You're helping out other people. You're giving to the poor. You're, you're helping your friends. You're uh, helping your parents. You're beginning to do the right things. Has that happened to you in your life? It's wonderful for us to talk about the righteousness of God. Now, do people look at you and say, now there's a righteous person? You remember that wonderful place at the end of the book of Revelation when it talks about the wedding feast and the bride has made herself ready and then it says that she, was, uh, uh, she had this wonderful gown and it was per- perfect in all of its embroidery and everything. And it says that gown is the righteousnesses of the saints. The acts of righteousness. Now Jesus isn't coming for the bride until that uh, dress is made. And that dress is made out of right actions. Now I'm not talking legalism. I'm talking about the way a Christian should be walking. I was interested. I just got in at the end of uh, uh, Jeffrey and Catherine's uh, little seminar here. (laughs) And all they were doing was talking about doing the right thing. It sounded strange to some of your ears, what they said. But they were just talking about ways to do the right thing. Hey, isn't that kind of novel today? (laughs) Somebody wants to learn how to do the right thing. That's you. And that's why if we learn these things in Christ Jesus, we can repair foundations that have gone missing for a long time. I'm really concerned about the vanilla church. The church has got no... No salt. It's got no light. It's got, it's got no bones. It's got no muscle. It's not doing it in uh, uh, serving God for the kingdom of God. I mean, you know, the kingdom is full of service, but the church is just, everybody is just self-indulgent. Now, thank God nobody here goes to a vanilla church. I think some of you maybe even go to Rocky Road Church. And things are tough. But if you learn how to do righteousness in the midst of all that's going on around us today, you will build a foundation in your life that will overcome no matter what happens. How how many of you know what's going to happen to the United States in the next 20 years? Man, I'm telling you, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I hope everything turns around and the Ford makes a successful Prius that's better than Toyota and and the, the stock market goes way up and everybody goes back to work and Everybody has a, a cat and a dog and two children and a, a house and a garage and three cars. I, I mean, okay, great. I, I hope that happens. That's the American dream. But I tell you what, the American dream just isn't coming true over the last 10, 12, 15 years. Something's shaken. See, God's shaken some foundations. Because we've got some screwy ideas about a Christian making a million bucks being the will of God. we just got some ideas. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't work anymore. And if God blesses you, that's fine. But you do right with what you have. You do right. Don't you be stingy. 
You're representing God now. You have a life of righteousness and works of righteousness. Isn't it wonderful where Paul says, after talking about us being saved by grace, he says, now you are God's workmanship. He's working on you. And you're created in Christ Jesus with some good works to do. And God's prepared these works just for you. Now, they're not the general works. They're specific works. And if, if, if we want to know a righteous God, we need to come to a righteous God and say, now God, you do things right. I want to learn how to do things right. I want to learn how to help. I want to learn how to do good works. I, I want to learn how to be servant in your kingdom. The righteous God will bless such a person. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Okay. So now, uh, I think we're just about through here. we got anything left? Oh yeah, of course. Well, it's a bit of a tussle, you see. The enemy doesn't want you to be righteous and doesn't want you to be strong in righteousness. He wants to undermine your righteousness because there's some people here in the dark of the night when you go back to somebody's house where you're, you, you know, you're staying with somebody and you really get to thinking about it. The devil says to you, you're not even a Christian. You're just a faker. You accept that Jesus, but there's no life in you, you're just no good, and you're really going to go to hell, or at least purgatory. And because you don't have a foundation in righteousness and knowing where you stand, the enemy undermines you. Of course, you know the enemy tries to undermine you 24 hours a day. And he especially wants to undermine you in righteousness. If he can get you to do unrighteousness and sin, it has made his day. He's always trying to beat you down. Always. So, what does it say here? Righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Now, what does that mean? That means every time you take a step by faith, believing God, standing in righteousness, every time you take a step, His righteousness is proven in your life. How do you know that you're a Christian? Because you do righteousness, 1 John chapter 3 says. So, Paul just tells us about putting on the full armor of God and especially, I just put down there, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, there it is, right there. Because that's what the enemy tries to shoot, your heart. And condemn your heart. And tell you you're not a Christian. But every time he does it, he hits that breastplate of righteousness, which is the acknowledgement that the blood of Jesus Christ has given you a robe of righteousness that the enemy cannot penetrate. Or... In this warfare, also, there must be honest confession of a sin when we do it in order for God to keep us in righteousness. We all know that verse. If we confess our sins, but listen now, He is faithful and righteous if we confess. Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, next time we're going to talk about the kissing game. How can righteousness and peace kiss each other? You know Psalm 85, 10? Love and truth have met together. That means they hugged and they tickled the belly. Uh, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now here's the deal. You see, these four different things, it, it seems like they're sort of diametrically opposed. I mean, coming before a righteous God and being kissed with peace, and holiness? How can that be? So you see, we have a lot to uh, deal with in the, in the remaining three parts of the foundation. Ladies and gentlemen,
this is the foundation of your life. And I know that uh, I, I know this is a bad example, but you have four legs that you're walking on. I know you got two. I'm just saying. But you're like, you know, you got four, what do you call them? Limbs. And I want all four limbs in good shape in order to stand with God and be like God. And the first thing is this righteousness and it's come into your life by faith. It's now in you through Jesus Christ and it's waiting to be expressed through you out into this world. You are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let that righteousness out like a stream. When Jesus walked upon this earth in the will of God, He did acts of righteousness daily. All the books in the world couldn't write all the things that He did. Now that's a righteous God. He does more than you can imagine. Those people in Richmond, you know, they got these old southern gospel songs, one old tune. It's their actual gospel song, but you guys never heard about it because it's too old. But it's called this. It's talking about the righteousness of Jesus. It's called, There Ain't No Flies on My Jesus. And what that means is, in gospel song parlance, he's too busy for anything to sit on. Because he's healing, he's helping, he's saving, he's showing mercy. There ain't no flies on my Jesus. Because Jesus is righteous. And now He lives in you and I. Lord, I pray that You would repair the foundation of righteousness in our lives. Lord, that You would bring back to us the vitality of religion. The true religion that does good works that are led by Your Spirit. Oh, we thank You, Lord, that You love those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we pray even among us that there would be those who would be repairers of the foundations that have been broken over the years. May it be said that we as Christians have met the God of love and truth and holiness and righteousness and that we're living under the influence and power of His throne. God, we just pray that throughout this whole weekend now we would find ourselves under Your throne and discovering who You are, the living God, even if it scares us, so it will also help us. And even if it comforts us, so it will also propel us. Oh God, bring us under the uh, influence and the power of Your great throne that we may not sell short our living God, but express God in all of His isness as we discover Him through Jesus Christ. Thank You for our foundation. Build us on that foundation. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And I don't don't forget the uh, thing it's in the back.